everyone and welcome to your daily dose of medicine with AMSA Malaysia. We advocate for knowledge, action and friendship. Enjoy! Um, Assalamualaikum and good morning everyone. Um, and uh, thank you uh, everyone for joining uh, us today to talk about an interesting topic um, which is HIV versus uh, diabetes. You know what it feels like. You're in medical school and you want those high scores that will help you land the specialty of your choice. Listen up. Lecturio.com makes high scores achievable for all medical students. With award-winning educators providing short and up-to-date video lectures, you'll learn medical concepts faster than ever before. Apply the concepts you've learned with the Lecturio Question Bank. Be prepared for test day with thousands of up-to-date board-style questions with text and video explanations. Finally, improve your ability to recall key information with an integrated spaced repetition system that tells you exactly when to review what you've learned. Need on-the-spot support? Use the free Lecturio Bookmatcher. You can now simply scan any textbook page to turn it into an explanatory video lecture. Sounds great, right? Go to Lecturio.com, create your free account, and start mastering medical concepts today. Uh, I am Lai Sapi'i, a fourth-year medical student from International Islamic University Malaysia and one of the AMSAS uh, Public Health Ambassador, and I will be your moderator for today's podcast. And um, with me today are two experts of the topic uh, that we will discuss, uh, which are uh, Prof. Dr. Nulaila and also uh, Associate Prof. Dr. Patrick. Um, okay, a bit introduction um, of our speaker. Prof. Uh, Dr. Nulaila has been an advisor for the Diabetes Nurse Educator for University Kuang Malaysia Medical Center since 2007. And she is a member of the Ethics Committee for the National Diabetes Institute. And she is also actively involved in diabetes research um, locally and also at multi-center clinical trials. Uh, currently, she is an endocrinologist in UKM. Uh, welcome, Prof, uh, to this podcast. Our second speaker with us today is uh, Associate Prof Dr. Patrick at Ramesh K. Periasami. Uh, Dr. Patrick uh, earned his medical degree from University Science Malaysia, Kuban Korean and completed his Master's of Internet Medicine in 2016 at University of Malaysia. Um, he is currently a lecturer and a specialist at the Department of International Ma Internal Medicine of uh, HUKM. Uh, welcome, Prof, uh, to this podcast. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation. So, without uh, wasting any more time, um, let us continue um, to Prof Nurlaila. Can you explain um, about what is diabetes uh, in general and what is causing someone to have diabetes or to be diagnosed with uh, diabetes? Right. Uh, thank you, uh, Laili. Uh, well, diabetes um, uh, is basically uh, due to uh, high blood sugar, meaning uh, there's an increase in blood sugar in our body. Uh, and uh, with that, there will also... Uh, uh, Increase. Uh, they will also. You will also notice the uh, sugar in the urine. So that's where the uh, diabetes mellitus come about. Uh, with regards to you know the name, why uh, you know we call it the name, or in Malay, in Malay we call it kencing manis because. 
the sugar, the presence of sugar in the urine. So why you have high blood sugar in the uh, in the blood is because um, the main two things is uh, insulin resistance and um, reduction in uh, or uh, insulin deficiency. Um, I wouldn't call it. Uh, reduction in insulin production, but you know, it's relative insulin uh, deficiency uh, if you talk about type 2 diabetes. Um, now, uh, although there's a lot of other factors uh, that actually uh, leads to hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, uh, example, um, there's uh, reduced um, uh, elimination of uh, sugar uh, by the kidney, uh, and uh, of course, all the other uh, factors like obesity, um, the way you eat and things like that. So um, with uh, all that, um, uh, especially obesity and um, your, your lack of exercise and um, uh, uh, excessive diet, uh, especially high carbohydrate, uh, will uh, lead to uh, hyperglycemia. Because uh, example, in, in a situation whereby somebody will eat so much and uh, at the end of the day, they don't uh, actually um, exercise a lot or less activity. Um, the uh, sugar in the body from whatever they eat will be, uh, you know, will be, uh, will be in the body and uh, will be kept uh, or will be converted to, to fat and they become obese. So excessive uh, weight gain lead to obesity, uh, then lead to um, uh, high blood sugar or hyperglycemia. So this is just a very simple explanation, um, you know, why diabetes happen. Uh, and if you talk about uh, insulin resistance that I mentioned earlier, insulin resistance is closely associated with obesity. So that's uh, why uh, I mentioned obesity, because obesity also on the, uh, is in the rise in Malaysia together with uh, diabetes. And relative insulin deficiency, as the blood sugar rise, the pancreas will then uh, work harder to break, to uh, produce more insulin and bring down the blood sugar. But uh, because of the uh, excess in blood sugar, uh, in a way, uh, the, in, the pancreas uh, could not produce more insulin. Therefore, you have this uh, condition, a relative insulin deficiency that also leads to uh, hyperglycemia. But of course, there's other uh, conditions whereby the person will have hyperglycemia or high blood sugar uh, in the presence of excess hormone cortisol, like, uh, like in Cushing syndrome, uh, excess of growth hormone production, like in acromegaly. And, you know, if the patient is taking uh, steroid or hydrocortisol or prednisolone, uh, because of the uh, treatment that they need uh, to uh, be on it, uh, also can uh, lead to hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. I think that's uh, in general. Um, thank you, Prof. Uh, so uh, I think before we can um, correlate this, because we are, we are talking about HIV and diabetes, before we can correlate these two diseases together, we also need to know what is um, HIV group and um, what caused someone to get infected with HIV or contract um, um, HIV. Maybe um, Prof. Patrick can tell us more about this. Uh, thanks, thanks, Laili. Um, yeah, so uh, HIV, I think that the long name for it is uh, Human Immunodeficiency Virus. Uh, it's a virus that actually attacks the body immune system. And uh, if it's not treated, it actually can lead to AIDS. And uh, I think everybody knows AIDS. And the, lo the long version is uh, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. 
So uh, for those who like history, uh, HIV, we think actually came into uh, humans from a type of chimpanzee uh, somewhere in Central Africa. And he used to call SIV, uh, Simian Immunodeficiency Virus. I think humans, uh, you know, uh, eat, uh, you know, eat uh, chimpanzee meat and came infected with their blood. Okay, and so we think uh, HIV jumped uh, from chimpanzee to human as far as uh, 18, uh, 1800s. Okay, so uh, today uh, uh, HIV, uh, one is acquired HIV to actually unprotected sex, sharing of uh, contaminated uh, uh, needles and um, intravenous needles, uh, cause uh, the low risk of actually uh, mother-to-child transmission and the rare occurrence of uh, blood transfusion. So uh, basically what happens is uh, when you acquire uh, uh, HIV, um, you, you have actually uh, divided into three stages. The first stage is called uh, acute HIV. And acute HIV is patients who, you know, after two to four weeks of uh, getting HIV may present with very non-specific symptoms, unfortunately, fever, chills, rash, sore throat, swollen lymph node, mouth ulcer. So you, you, you would think, you know, it could be any from COVID to dengue, you know, to any viral ulcer. And, um, and only 50% will actually present with this problem. So if they volunteer in history and uh, if they have symptoms, then one can test the HIV test and actually get the treatment much, much earlier. Uh, because uh, for those who didn't get symptoms and those who doesn't volunteer uh, to get tested, and, and these patients who have high HIV viral load and they're very contagious, and uh, you know, and if they don't get treated, uh, they don't get uh, tested. They go into something called chronic HIV infection, where uh, the virus is still replicating, uh, but at low levels, and they are still infectious. And unfortunately, again, if they don't get uh, tested, uh, the, the, as more of the virus replicates, they attack the immune system, and this immune system is popularly known as CD4. Uh, so uh, more virus attacks our immune system, the CD4, the CD4 comes low. So each, each of us should have a minimum CD4 500 and above to protect ourselves. But as more of the virus replicates and uh, brings down the CD4 to below a critical stage, what we call uh, AIDS, I mean the CD4 is below 200, then you go to the final stage, uh, which is AIDS. This is where we see most of our patients uh, coming to our hospital with uh, opportunistic infection. Uh, and this opposition infection can involve the brain, uh, TB, uh, you know, from parasites to toxoplasmosis to TB, um, um, to fungal infection like cryptococcal meningitis. They can infect the lung, you know, uh, they can get uh, pneumocystis, uh, um, they can get primary TB, uh, they can involve the intra-abdominal uh, uh, infection, bloodstream infection, uh, skin changes. So, um, you know, without uh, proper therapy, uh, you know, eight patient can succumb in about, you know, two or three years time. So that's sort of in the nutshell, uh, what is HIV? Yeah. Thank you, Prof. Understood. Um, so, um, like um, you said before, in, in uh, HIV patient, they get opportunistic infection, right? Does this mean like they also have increased risk of getting diabetes? Is that... Uh, uh, yes, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so I'll answer this in, in that way, in this way. So basically, most of our patients, when they are very ill, uh, they come to our clinic. Now, of course, they are usually they have severe loss of weight, so they're very, uh, you know, uh, they're very malnourished, loss loss of weight. Especially those who 
coming very late into our hospital setting. Uh, but uh, with antiretroviral therapy, once they improve, um, they, they tend to gain weight and, uh, and, and probably sedentary lifestyle and all that, multifactorial. It, they have higher risk of diabetes, especially the first year. So if you take into an account of uh, HIV patients uh, versus non-HIV patients, for every, you know, for every five pounds, uh, you gain weight. The HIV patients with HIV may have a 14% risk of uh, getting diabetic compared to a 8, 8% to a non-HIV patients. In terms of incidence rate, um, uh, they can be as low as 4 to up to uh, maybe 15 uh, uh, per thousand patient years. So, uh, they, of course, it's higher than the uh, general population. Uh, other ways to, to mention is to um, maybe there are four times higher risk of getting diabetes. Uh, uh, men, uh, men with HIV, there are four times higher risk of getting diabetes while on antiretroviral therapy compared to non-HIV patients. So, multifactorial, uh, some are weight gain, especially they, they improve, they tend to eat um, sedentary lifestyle. Uh, could be HIV pathogenesis that is involved in uh, occurrence of diabetes. Uh, and occasionally, some of the newer drugs, you know, uh, some of the better drugs, um, uh, things like Doltugrave or uh, um, uh, what is that, uh, uh, Tenofovir alfonamide, they are newer drugs and they, they have higher risk of uh, predisposing a patient to diabetes compared to our old 1980, 1990 drugs. So, those are multi reasons. Lah. So, it, to answer to your question is yes, they have higher risk of actually uh, getting diabetes compared to non-HIV patients. Uh, Brooke, since you, you mentioned about the um, therapy for the uh, HIV patient, maybe can, uh, you can I know the HAARP, right? Uh, highly yeah. active uh, enteroretroviral yeah. therapy. You can describe further or um, tell us more about that therapy. I mean, um, does, every, uh, does all HIV patients need to be on that therapy? And what happens if they decide to... Um, to not take the medication? Thanks for the question. Yeah, I think we came a long way. Uh, when I first started off, we, we said uh, only patients with CD4, uh, when I was, I think, an MO time, only patients with CD4 less than 200 because you don't want the patients with HIV to develop AIDS. So we started with 200. I think that time we have very uh, limited number of antiretroviral medication in, 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 in uh, Malaysia. Uh, as more science came out and uh, the, the most famous trial is called the STAR trial where we found out regardless of your CD4, you have significant benefit by taking antiretroviral therapy. So I think uh, in 2013 in Kuala Lumpur, uh, we started antiretroviral therapy for anybody with CD4 less than 500. But after that, uh, with the STAR trial, we uh, now with the science that we know that anybody, any patients with HIV, regardless of their CD4, the uh, benefits from antiretroviral therapy and, and the reason is, is, is um, actually related to the uh, uh, prognosis. So uh, you imagine uh, if a patient's coming in very late, uh, say CD4 less than 50, come in very late, they start antiretroviral therapy, there's still, you know, there's still risk of dying, you know, about 15%, even after five years of antiretroviral therapy. So it's very important to catch them uh, early and um, meta-analysis has shown that, uh, you know, in over 200 or 290 over 1,000 patients that, uh, you know, 80% uh, may succumb in six years' time if you don't get antiretroviral therapy. 
And uh, so it's very important to start early. So some patients ask, you know, what is actually the benefit if I start heart very early? My CD4 is normal. You know, my CDP is more than 500. Uh, is there any benefit? My, I'm just like the other guy. Is there any benefit? Uh, studies have shown, uh, meta-analysis have shown that if you take antiretroviral and if you maintain your antiretroviral, you know, uh, more than 500, you have the same survival as any patients without non-HIV. Okay. Uh, of course, uh, being older, every one of us are, are at risk of, you know, getting cardiovascular disease and malignancy. So, in, you know, in high-income countries, you know, when you take antiretroviral therapy, you add probably up to 40 over years into your life. Okay. So, uh, so in a way, uh, patients without HIV, let's say their average survival is around 79. And uh, if you take take a HIV patient who is diagnosed HIV when they are 20 years old and they take antiretroviral therapy. Their average lifespan is around 71 years old. So almost equal to a non-HIV patients. But if you take a 20-year-old and he doesn't want to take antiretroviral therapy, his survival rate is very short, huh? uh, maybe up to 30 over years that's added uh, benefit without antiretroviral therapy. So, uh, uh, so antiretroviral has come a long way uh, uh, initially, we have very limited supply. Uh, uh, there are better drugs now. Uh, there are a lot of generic drugs now. Of course, the better ones are quite still like, quite expensive. Um, uh, there are six, seven classes right now from the classes that we had only had one or two. So many options on the table um, and things are moving on. Uh, now they even have injectable uh, antiretroviral that you can inject once or twice a month. Uh, sorry, one or even two months once. Huh? So things are moving along, uh, better drugs, less side effects. Yeah, in a nutshell. All right, okay, thank you, Prof. Um, back to um, Prof. Nolaila. Um, we have heard uh, about the heart uh, therapy for and retroviral. Diabetes also have this kind of um, regimen therapy or what, what kind of um, management? How do we manage patients with diabetes? Uh, right. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Laili. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, things can be done uh, to uh, um, uh, to to treat diabetes or to manage diabetes. But first of and foremost is uh, again life lifestyle intervention or healthy lifestyle. Whatever medication that we give to the patient, uh, lifestyle has to be stressed uh, into the regimen. Um, because we know very well, if you, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the reason why people develop diabetes or uh, hyperglycemia is because the way they eat high carbohydrate diet, high fat and lack of activity or physical activity, lack of exercise. Um, of course, genetic is, is always in the background, but if we live healthily, then uh, one should not be getting diabetes or hyperglycemia. Uh, and um, uh, we have a lot of oral agents. Uh, and uh, and then uh, from oral agent, we move away to uh, insulin injection. And now we have GLP-1 insulin uh, injection. Uh, Prof. Patrick mentioned about once every two months, uh, you know, a treat, injectable treatment for HIV. Uh, nowadays, uh, we also have a once-weekly injection. Uh, GLP-1 is a hormone uh, to uh, bring down the blood sugar or to manage uh, diabetes. So it's really interesting because medicine is something that's always, uh, um, you know, uh, on the, uh, uh, always, uh, um, you know, always we try to improve uh, with regards to management and so on. So uh, if we talk about management, uh, like I said, uh, that, uh, uh, 
lifestyle uh, intervention and we always start with metformin uh, we follow the guideline the Malaysian CPG guideline we start with metformin because it's very cost effective uh, not very expensive uh, and uh, after that it depends on um, the profile of the patient uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors whereby uh, how does it work it will um, increase uh, the elimination of sugar in the urine. Therefore, you will see that the patient will pass a lot of urine and together with it, they pass a lot of sugar. And with that, because of that calorie loss, the blood sugar will reduce and they will tend to lose a bit of weight. Uh, so that's SGLT2 inhibitor. Of course, uh, in the past, even, uh, even now, we still use sulfonylurea. How does it work? It will uh, stimulate pancreas to produce more insulin and therefore will bring down your blood sugar. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, we also have a DPP-4 inhibitors, um, which is uh, incretin. Incretin uh, uh, is said to play a big role uh, in, uh, in uh, causing hyperglycemia. So with DP, the, uh, by giving DPP-4 inhibitor, the hormone uh, GLP-1 and uh, GIP will increase. And uh, this, uh, these two hormones will then uh, um, uh, stimulate um, uh, pancreas to produce more insulin and bring down the blood sugar. And we also have ACABOS or alpha-glucosidase inhibitor which will uh, uh, bring down the blood sugar. Metformin uh, will reduce absorption of blood sugar from the uh, gut uh, or from the uh, intestine. Uh, and we also have um, insulin. Um, we have human insulin, we have analog insulin or uh, modern insulin, um, whether it's basal insulin, whereby you uh, ask the patient to inject uh, once uh, a day uh, at night uh, on top of uh, all the other oral agents that they've been taking. Uh, and uh, there's also a bolus insulin that needs to be given every time they eat. Uh, and there's also to... to um, to, to help the patient so that the compliance will be uh, better. There's a mixture of uh, bolus insulin and long-acting or, or basal insulin. Uh, we call it uh, premix insulin that is given uh, during the two uh, main meals, that is lunch and dinner. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, GLP-1, uh, initially uh, for the past 10 years, we have a once-a-day uh, GLP-1 injection. GLP-1 will uh, indirectly stimulate uh, um, pancreas uh, to produce uh, more insulin. Uh, nowadays, we have uh, a weekly uh, GLP-1 injection. So you can see there's a lot of uh, agent in the market to bring down the blood sugar. But without diet and exercise, this agent will uh, not uh, uh, help uh, as much as uh, you know we expect. So uh, whatever uh, um, treatment that we uh, give to our patient with diabetes, uh, the importance of uh, reducing uh, the carbohydrate intake, uh, eat more uh, fibers or vegetables and uh, do a regular physical activity at least 30 minutes a day is uh, a must to uh, maintain a normal blood sugar level. Yeah, that, that's true, Prof. Um, the, the most important thing is the patient himself, whether they want to change their lifestyle. And and one thing that you, you mentioned, um, that when someone was diagnosed with HIV, we tend to cast them aside, we stigmatize them. So um, is this, um, and I think the stigma on HIV is significant than, than stigma than people who have diabetes. So what, 
um, what are your take on this, Prof. Patrick? And how can we, as a maybe um, doctor later, can do to help uh, this patient and also to educate the society, not to stigmatize this patient, so they can get as much. Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, um, yeah, stigma is a big problem, and uh, if I can. If I can divide stigma into uh, three types of stigma, one is uh, self-stigma. So, uh, patient is ready without anybody saying anything to him. He is really feeling very uh, uh, depressed and uh, questioning why did he uh, get this? He could have prevented it. So, this is called self-stigma. So that that's uh, uh, usually need uh, usually needs to be detected. We are very busy clinicians in the ward. We're trying to treat this infection that is entering his brain or is present in his lung multi-infection. So we forgot about the patient itself. Uh, a patient is very depressed, uh, just getting to know the, the, just found out the news, you know, and uh, so we can miss that. And, and we, we often do sometimes, when, especially in a patient having a lot of infection. So uh, if we pick them up uh, and, 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 psychiatry or psychologist involvement is very important to to you know uh, to build up this this thing and the other one is what we call perceived stigma perceived stigma is uh, he's already anticipating discrimination already he's from the healthcare worker from the family members and uh, so uh, you know actually they might be uh, so we now dealings with family members some are very accepting um, uh, there are patients who don't tell, they carry the disease for 10, 20, 30 years. They don't even tell one family members, but they tell their friends. Sometimes their friend, they trust more, I suppose less judging. But we also have seen family cohorts where they tell everybody in their family, including their uncle, aunties and nieces. So I, I suppose, uh, you know, for 20 years, we have seen a lot of families, different family structures. Some are very accommodating non-judgmental whereas some uh, you know they don't even tell anybody until they are until they are grave so 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 that that's another issue and and fi finally we call um external uh, uh stigma where the patient actually get uh, uh stigmatized huh? so um so i think this is getting less and less but um so uh, all all the stigma actually has some effect they, they causes some um, you know it causes isolation uh, it causes uh, depression. Uh, patient doesn't want to come early. We asked that you diagnose in 20 years, why you never show up? I'm scared to come to a healthcare facility. I scared what the nurse thing, I scared what the doctor thing, I scared at the registration counter uh, uh, why you came here. They will read my letter at the counter. Um, so, uh, you know, um, so they, they go back to their, um, you know, they don't get uh, treatment for their uh, you know, intravenous drug because they're scared to appear into the methadone clinic to the to the uh, for the free needles. They're scared to buy that uh, condom in front of the Seven Eleven because they worry the clerk might see them. They're scared to get the free condom at the nursing at the healthcare facility because you know it's in front of everyone that I have to go and get it. Uh, you know, so so that, that makes them late to appointment, miss appointment. So uh, studies have shown that you know with with this stigma, it actually uh, it causes increase in mortality uh, up to seven to ten times. Uh, and, and that's because uh, that leads to poor adherence because it's so hard for them to uh, actually take the medication thinking about all this situation. And that leads to virological failure. So I think some of the methods, uh, we, we, you know, one of those internal things, we, we try to get them into psychology, psychiatrist uh, thing. We always encourage them to actually uh, tell a family member or a friend 
and now there are many uh, um, uh, NGOs out there, the Malaysia Aid Councils, a lot of peer support group uh, scattered around Klang Valley, especially that. So they, they usually trust somebody and they believe somebody who's been HIV for 20, 30 years and they are the counselors. They are the best counselors because they tend to to believe, you know, in a, in a brethren, oh, you have the same disease, huh? but you've been with this for 30 years, my goodness. So, uh, you know, that actually encourages them. Uh, so we need um, more, more of this into this thing. And the other thing, like what I say, structural facilities, how to make it so accommodating for them to come. Uh, you know, simple thing, they ask me, should I put your name in your door, Dr. Patrick, infectious disease? I say, no way. You know, we, we um, you know, some patients come there and see infectious disease, okay, this guy is carrying something. So we make it no name or so, you know, no name, no what is subspecialty or so. So I, I'm not very sure that helps, but, you know, so how to, and, and not to repeat the same question over again. They, they get very, imagine one MO, this patient diagnosed for seven years, 10 years, uh, HIV. You know, the first MOC is okay, you get a detailed history, you know, how did you get it and all that stuff. But you can't be asking this the next time or the next three years. Actually, how you got it, you see, uh, you know, some patients want to move on. And I think, uh, and, uh, I think uh, we have come a long way from the 1990s to 2000. Still a lot of work to do. Uh, uh, but otherwise, yeah, the, the stigma is still, is still a problem uh, currently in Malaysia. All right. Can I uh, add, uh, Laili, it's interesting that Prof. Patrick uh, divided into three types of stigma. I think for diabetes patient, right, uh, the self-stigma is the most uh, um, uh, uh, common one. Uh, and that's the delay why they actually come to see us. By the time they come, they already have maybe uh, some uh, you know, complication like retinopathy at least, or you know, maybe they have protein in their urine. The reason being is uh, they, they, feel, they feel embarrassed you know, that they have diabetes, especially these young people. They don't want to know people have diabetes. And, you know, uh, some company doesn't want to employ them if they know that the patient has diabetes. And I've come across this. Um, diabetes can be controlled. Okay. And, you know, they can live uh, up to 70, 80 years old with, without complication if the, if the patient really controls the blood sugar. And, you know, the um, half-life, you know, the, the lifespan can be as, uh, you know, as uh, any other people without diabetes, if we really control uh, the blood sugar. Again, uh, con uh, diabetes is well controlled. So this self-stigma is very important. And with that self-stigma, there's delay in, uh, in management and that leads to complication. So uh, interesting, you know, this self-stigma, actually uh, the most important thing that we have to tackle actually, um, to me, uh, with regards to diabetes. And of course, uh, when Prof. Patrick said about, you know, a delay in getting and seeing doctor because of self-stigma as well, more or less the same, Patrick. Uh, that, that's a very interesting news, Prof. Laila. I never knew that, uh, I really never knew that uh, patients with diabetes actually thought that way. I thought only patients with, you know, infectious disease where they get stigmatized. I didn't know they also... Actually, it's quite scared to come to the clinic. Yeah, setting. because they, they think that when they come and see the doctor, right, you know, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to chop off their leg. That's the thing that they always mention. Uh, or, you know, the other thing is scared of the uh, medication will cause complication uh, or cause uh, side effects. But they don't know that, you know, the diabetes, the uncontrolled diabetes itself lead to complication. So all this uh, misinformation, uh, of course, the stigma is the first thing. Uh, the stigma about not wanting to know or maybe a denial, not when wanting to know whether do I have diabetes? 
because my mother has diabetes you know can i do it? so all this uh, uh, we should actually uh, the education again you know uh, the you know the know uh, uh, the moment uh, the patient know that they are at risk whether they are at risk of getting diabetes at risk of getting hiv then they should come and see us you know the early treatment and even prevention is better uh, that's all i can say <laughs> um, okay so uh, i think with that um, we have completed um, the last question for today uh, that was the, the last question and uh, thank you both uh, Prof. Patrick and also Prof. Uh, Nurlaila for your time uh, and for joining us uh, in this podcast uh, despite both of you I'm sure are very busy <laughs> and um, to all our audiences I hope all of you learned um, something and gained uh, insight about both HIV and also uh, diabetes because uh, I definitely learned a lot uh, and um, with that um, concludes our episode three of HIV versus diabetes, and um, take uh, thank you, take care, and stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Laili. Thank you, Laili. Thank you, Prof. Thank you, Prof. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Prof. and Prof. Nalaila. Thank you.